0: Hello and welcome back to the Performance Cycling Podcast. I'm Todd Norwood, here with my co-host Jason Hammond.
1: Hey Todd, how's it going?
0: It's going well, although here is a little bit of a, a misnomer, here here in spirit, but uh, physically and socially distanced appropriately over the internet.
1: Yes, we are still in the uh, internet, over the internet phase of hosting these podcasts, so please excuse any uh, deviations from uh, standard quality.
0: So, so what are we, what are we discussing tonight?
1: Um, so we are going to, first thing I want to say is this is, you know, intended to be kind of satirical and, um, you know, I don't think anyone should be doping and, uh, both because there's, you know, ethical and moral reasons not to dope, but also because, um, as we're going to talk about initially there, there's also detrimental health issues and concerns related to taking these substances. Uh, with that being said, Todd, today we're going to talk about our new doping habit. So let's talk about some of the big areas that um, that a lot of cyclists have tried to use, a lot of substances that they've tried to use to improve their performance and you know, start to pick out some that, uh, that we might be interested in.
0: So EPO, steroids, caffeine, just yep. the, so the I, stand, standard ones.
1: Yes, for now. So we'll see if um, see if in the future we want to get into some of the weirder ones. So um, to start, though, let's let's bring up a few important points uh, about just doping in general. So you know we're both in America, so we are under the jurisdiction of USA Anti Doping Agency or USADA, and I believe in 1999 they uh, created WADA, which is World Anti Doping Agency. And the both of these agencies have a banned substance list. So um, for whatever country you live in, you are um, if, if you're in a sport that does um, testing for these substances, you, you have to abide by both the national list and the world list. So it's a good idea to check both. They may be different. Um, and the big thing here is um, USADA and WADA are concerned with Uh, maintaining competitive integrity, and also maintaining the health of the athletes. So their main goal is to create a banned list and make sure that the banned list is followed. And the substance is on the banned list because it's detrimental to your health, potentially, and it's also performance enhancing. So, you know, know, I'm, I'm trying to think of a drug that is just detrimental to your health and not performance enhancing it, you know, it's not a banned substance,
0: illicit illicit drugs, right? Yeah. But those are, those are also on the list, right?
1: Um, so some things like, you know, uh, there are some, uh, pesticides or, um, you know, yeah, they'll have some,
0: Oh, okay. Okay. I see what you're you're saying. Just because it's a
1: chemical doesn't mean it's on the list. Um, it's actually a chemical that could potentially make you a better athlete for your given event.
0: Right. So, so roundup is not on the list. Correct. Detrimental for your health. Yes. not going to necessarily help your athletic performance in any way.
1: Correct. And um, actually, there is a subset that you're talking about, which is um, there are some substances that are banned in competition because they're a danger to yourself or other riders during competition, but may not be performance enhancing, such as alcohol, cannabis, um, some illicit drugs like uh, the Schedule 1 um, drugs. And the idea with those is we don't want someone who is high or drunk in the middle of a bike race because you know they're impaired they they may hurt themselves or others. Um, but if it's you know if it's not in that particular subset that is intended for on competition concerns, it's because it's you know detrimental to your health and performance enhancing. So that should be the biggest initial, you know key that, If something's on this list you know you if you're gonna take it which you shouldn't if you're gonna take it it's you know it's already dangerous just taking it
0: right i think sometimes that's what is forgotten about those agencies like oh they just do performance enhancing they just look at the things that you know might give you a competitive advantage and they're interested in the integrity of sport Uh, but they're also interested in the health of the athlete as well and i think that's sometimes forgotten like, oh, we're just looking at things that, you know, keeping sport equal and fair, but there's actually a second piece to what they do.
1: Correct. And and while we're on this topic, there's a lot of, I would say, less informed people who think, you know, hey, we should just let everyone dope up as much as they want. And uh, yes, the uh, steroid, clean
0: versus not clean sport. Yeah, sort the, of approach. Um,
1: they're called the steroid Olympics is, I think, the common term for it. And um, I, I think the, big, the biggest counterargument to that is thinking of the development pathway. So you have these non-professional sports entities, just you know, semi-professional or amateur level sports, and say you want to be in the steroid Olympics, then these you know, people with less resources, less funding, they have to somehow figure out how to dope to match the highest level. And um, that's when you introduce a lot of health risks. Like on, under supervision of a medical doctor, um, you can safely you know, use some of these techniques. But the, the point is, if you're an amateur level, the risk goes way up, especially if it's um, unregulated and uncontrolled by a medical professional.
0: There's a whole documentary about that, right? That's sort of what um, Icarus is about. He, yep. I was actually under the supervision of a professional and Taking a, taking a number of substances to boost his performance.
1: And uh, and I think the summary of that was actually that he did not really see much of a benefit.
0: Correct. Well, at least not when, when it came to the event that he was doing.
1: Yeah, correct. So the last thing we have before we jump into some of the drugs we're going to try, um, <laughs> the, the last thing is the there's this thing called your glow period, and this is something that's commonly discussed in people who actually dope. And the idea is, if you're on the national testing program, you have in-competition and out-of-competition tests. And out-of-competition tests are, there's some, you know, USADA official who comes to your house at six in the morning, knocks on your door and says, I need you to pee in a cup. And, uh, you know, the urine in that cup better be clean. It better not have any banned substances in it. And then there's in-competition testing, which is, hey, you just won the race, you know, come pee in a cup. So... Um, the the glow period is after taking some um, some banned substance. You're you're glowing for a certain period, where if if you get tested when you're glowing, you're you're gonna get caught. So it's it's interesting when when riders will interact or um you know if if you do get that knock at six a.m. and you're glowing, you get your you know your teammate to convince them that you're you know crying at your girlfriend's house, and you know, you can't come to the door or, um, you know, oh, you're puking in the bathroom, so he's really sick. Sorry. Uh, you know, you do whatever it takes to not take the test because you're glowing.
0: So that's that's interesting, right? And I know different agencies have different rules. I don't know that it's still true of the NBA, but previously um, the way uh, the Basketball Association tested was they had a fixed number of tests per year and after that number of tests was up there was no more testing in season until the next season Ah. which there were you know the skeptics raised all sorts of concerns around that about so what you're saying is if you know certain player has done testing in january and his team's looking good to make the playoffs he can do whatever he wants right he can juice up the rest of the season into the playoffs and it's not a problem Cause he's not going to have a positive test because nobody's going to test him. And then whatever summer comes, he can you know go off. And then by the time the first income testing test comes next year.
1: Yeah. You're not glowing be. anymore.
0: Yep. So I don't know if they've changed it recently, but you know, within the last I'd say five years for sure, that was their policy.
1: Yeah, and I, I remember a story about in the '90s the um, there was an athlete who was living up on the side of a mountain for the altitude value, and the USADA official who was in charge of doing their out of comp- out of competition testing uh, would call them and you know hey just want to make sure you're home because uh, I don't want to drive up the mountain um, you know if you're not going to be there and. You know of course that just gives the rider all the control to say, oh no, I'm actually you know out because um, you know if they're glowing, they can just come up with any excuse they want
0: interesting yeah, and then it seems the, like a, a failure in the system there
1: yeah the the other one is um the I okay this one I uh, is more I, I'm not as sure about this one, but I believe the only uh, wada lab so you need a lab within the continent that you are testing in and the only wada lab in africa i believe had its license revoked and so um, there's some speculation as to why a lot of athletes will train in africa and it's because they can't do out of competition testing in africa if there's no lab in africa so uh you know i know team sky did a lot of um training in africa and you know there's some ambiguity there interesting So uh, let's move on to um, some of the the drugs that that are commonly used. So, um, Todd, I guess we're going to start off with maybe a little quiz, although you're probably going to get it right. Um, What is sort of the classic drug, the drug that's been used in cycling since 1900?
0: You're talking about amphetamines?
1: Yes, and other acceptable answers are cocaine and caffeine. And a drug that I was not familiar with before doing research for this, but Strychnine?
0: Uh, I've heard I've heard of it before. I can't recall the use. Clearly, I'm not uh, experienced over here. I'm really, I'm really denying it.
1: Yeah, so um, Strychnine is actually, it is a pesticide. I know I mentioned earlier um, about pesticides not being on the list, but that one in particular acts in it very similarly to amphetamines and cocaine. In that, here are the advantages. If you are interested, uh, you have increased alertness, wakefulness, endurance, and motivation. These are the big ones. Um, you also have increased heart rate and blood pressure, so that can help you know move the oxygen through. And you also have decreased desire for food or sleep.
0: Hmm. That sounds like uh, yeah. Sounds like something you might want to use if you're doing a. <sighs> You know, one of the original, you know, stages of the Tour de France in the early 1900s, right?
1: Yeah, so when you had 250-mile stages, it was very nice to have no desire for food or sleep. You also felt alert, wakeful. Um, and, and it's also um, with some, um, you know, there are some downsides, uh, but this can also improve your um, your concentration if you you know, say even for an athlete who like, you know, coming into a sprint finish, there's a lot of technical movement and you have to make sure you don't hit anybody. But um, these sorts of really high concentration things could be made easier by this. uh, I'm generically referring to them as these stimulants.
0: And yes, of course, they're known to have uh, fatal side effects as well.
1: Yes. Yeah, so the disadvantages, uh, some things you might be concerned about if, if this is the course of action you're going to take is, one, a dramatic increase in body temperature. And that's a problem because of uh, the potential for heat stroke. And uh, in addition to that, your heart may lose its natural rhythm. So uh, we talked about heart rate variability before. Your heart rate variability goes off the charts when you have a lot of uh, amphetamines and uh, other stimulants. And the last disadvantage is it could potentially cause a fatal heart stroke. And actually, there was a Tour de France rider on Mont Ventoux in 1967. Uh, his name is Tom Simpson. They actually have a statue for him, I believe, uh, on mm-hmm. Mont Ventoux. And uh, he died of a fatal heart stroke uh, during the race. And he had two capsules. He had three capsules of amphetamines in his pocket, and two were empty. Um, so... You could die during the race. I mean, that's one potential downside.
0: Yeah, just, a, just a small one. No, I mean, yeah. So now, you know, you, you say stimulants is the class, right? And yep. those those range from caffeine, which is a stimulant, and yep. is legal in certain amounts, um, all the way up to amphetamines, which are, you know, illegal and, uh, you know, potentially deadly. Uh, if you consume them. Um, And so I I feel like we got to talk about caffeine a little bit, because I think we, many of us drink coffee or have caffeinated energy gels or caffeinated sports drinks. And um, we're looking for some performance benefit there. And that's totally legal. And, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's actually a, a concentration per Unit body weight, right? Is how they define the limits of caffeine.
1: So actually caffeine no longer has a limit. Oh, they've removed it. So they, yes, they used to, it was actually really complicated the way that they used to measure caffeine. So, um, we know that for an individual who say every day, they have 200 milligrams of caffeine, two cups of coffee. Um, if they have a third cup one day, they would show the same response to an individual who has no regular cups of coffee if they had one cup. There's this sort of linear offset based on your habitual caffeine intake. So if if a rider habitually intook, you know, four cups of coffee a day because, you know, I don't know, they wanted to hydrate with coffee instead of water, then, you know, it looked like they had really high caffeine content, but, you know, they saw no performance benefits, they saw no detrimental, you know, they didn't feel really, um, you know, crazy or irritable or anything like that. So right. caffeine's, that was, yeah, um, caffeine's that a little weird. In that Right. So um, they, one, had trouble measuring caffeine in terms of how much someone had taken and whether that was a dangerous amount. So yeah, they tried to do some uh, body weight based measurements and they ended up actually taking it on, off the list. And if you go back to... Uh, Or the original mission statement of WADA and USADA, they substances on the list are performance enhancing and detrimental to health. And, you know, sort of the consensus was you have to take a lot of caffeine for it to be detrimental to your health.
0: And it's probably going to be detrimental to your performance before it gets detrimental to your health.
1: Right. So, caffeine, uh, in terms of the list of stimulants, caffeine is. Good to go. We know that uh, moderate amounts of caffeine, such as like two cups of coffee, is the right dose to get the performance benefit from it. You get a lot of these advantages: uh, the alertness, the wakefulness, the decreased desire for food. That's one thing that um, you know. If you're at base season, you might want to ramp up the caffeine a bit if you uh, if you're trying not to eat too much because it can act to uh, reduce your appetite. Um, but you know, once you go over two cups of coffee. Uh, you know you start to get a little shaky you start to get um, you know a bit paranoid and it it stops really being beneficial all
0: right any more any more stimulants we need to
1: um so the only other thing i have for the stimulants is that um, i have a few riders who who use stimulants um, specifically um well this is kind of interesting because um tom bonin I'm sure you know this was uh, mm-hmm. he had an out of competition positive for cocaine in 2008, yep. and it's funny because it's uh, you know out of competition, so it may not have been for his own performance benefit. Um, as and also Diego Maradona, a famous uh, soccer player, had mm-hmm. a similar out of competition um, cocaine positive, and um, he actually Tom Bonin was caught again a year later in 2009 for cocaine again, and um, Actually, the only recent um, user of cocaine or other stimulants is Luca Paolini. Uh, if you remember from the 2015 tour, he got kicked out of the race after stage 7 because he had cocaine in his system.
0: Interesting choice of performance enhancer.
1: Yeah, and also like very easy to detect. So it's interesting yes, that... Um, Yeah, that he chose that. But I I believe his story is he got caught and then they kicked him out of the race and then he said, okay, I'm retiring. Thank you. And he was, I think he was 37 and he just said, okay, I'm just going to...
0: Going to hang it up.
1: Yeah. So, um, yeah, largely stimulants are not really used. Um, Like I said, it's really easy to determine if someone's using a stimulant uh, through urine or blood tests. And there are lots of really negative downsides and there are multiple deaths in cycling attributed to uh, stimulant use and especially amphetamines because those really uh, bump up the the body heat that you produce and it can get really dangerous on hot or even warm days so the next uh, class we're going to talk about are hormones and steroids and the most common of this um, actually uh, as a tangent um, USA or USADA uh, publishes every doping positive under their jurisdiction in one list on one website and they'll list the sport, you know what they were caught for and uh, the person's name and they, they redact the name after 10 years. So um, if you want your name to be Googled uh, and have a USADA link to um, you know, the infraction you had as the first result on Google, then uh, doping is a good choice for you. Um, if, you know, you have to convince them to test you is um, part of the problem. But um, when looking through the cycling-specific, um, you know, sanctions, they there were a lot of androgenic anabolic steroids.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And specifically, Todd, I'm sure you know the answer to this as well, in which category, which... Uh, like, I'm going to ruin it if I say it. Age group is this common.
0: I imagine it's master's athletes, hands down.
1: Yes. So there are actually a lot of sanctions against master's athletes that use anabolic steroids. And specifically, uh, these steroids... Um, correct me if I'm wrong, Todd. A steroid is a substance that you ingest that is intended to simulate the way our natural hormones work.
0: Yeah, right. Um, so, you. Ha- I mean, you have different different steroids for different purposes, but like um, cortisone, for example, is a steroid uh, that's often used from, you know, it's anti-inflammatory um, and there's other, like, right? So sometimes you might, uh, if you had a severe allergic reaction, so um, say poison oak doesn't, doesn't treat you very well. Uh, you might go to the doctor and you might leave with a prednisone prescription. Um, And that's that's a steroid that has an anti-inflammatory effect, much like our our body's natural chemistry. So yeah, we're trying to replace that or or replicate that or um, enhance that in some way by ingesting or injecting uh, these substances.
1: Yep. And so um, this androgenic anabolic steroid specifically is intending to replicate testosterone. Um, And they have, it's actually, I I read one paper that's, they're sort of starting to have synthetic and, um, what's the other term? It's escaping me now, but um, sort of uh, designer uh, hormones or designer steroids to, um, one, be less detectable, and two, sort of enhance the, the effects. But at the end of the day, all of these, uh, they're also referred to as AAS. All of these AAS uh, supplements are all just intended to increase testosterone levels in the body
0: and the the belief here, right, is that that's going to um, improve recovery, improve lean muscle mass, right, improve uh, fat burning. like all all those things are sort of the desired effects that we're getting from you potentially get from taking those substances yeah. or having just having that naturally occurring in your body.
1: correct. And um, another big thing with testosterone is that um, you actually produce more red blood cells um, because it signals to the bone marrow to um, help produce more red blood cells so uh, I, I think it's interesting because actually um, these steroids are perfect for masters crit riders um, largely the speed is low enough that you don't have to worry about your aerobic capacity so much and it's really about the last couple laps can you um, you know assert yourself to the front of the race and do you have the power at the end to make a difference over your competitors? So uh, not only is this common because we know that testosterone levels drop as you get older, but also because of the particular uh, racing domain of um, steroids in master's racing. It's, it's just sort of the perfect drug if you're trying to see a performance benefit.
0: Well, and there's one particularly famous Tour de France case, right? One. Um, well, there, there are several, but there's one in, in particular.
1: Well, you'll have to remind me of that i uh well, I don't wanna skip ahead to the uh to who has um you know doping sanctions for testosterone yet we still have to talk about um how you know these anabolic steroids might you know really damage you
0: so, All right, well let's let's do that and then we'll we'll talk about okay cases.
1: So the first thing is um, some of the the more minor disadvantages. So, you know, the advantages, you know, more muscle mass, lower fat stores, stronger bones, more red blood cells, um, potentially higher sex drive. These are all, uh, you know, we've all seen the Viagra uh, commercial or, um, you know, whatever these other things that they have uh, available. And some of the disadvantages, though.
0: Or the spammy email that you get in your inbox. Yeah, yeah. if If you dig if you dig through your spam, spam filter a little bit, there's probably several in there.
1: All right. So, um, some of the disadvantages though, that they don't talk about is much higher fluid retention. So you gain a lot of, uh, total body weight because you, you can't get rid of fluids as easily. You also become more aggressive. So when you start yelling at everyone, uh, that's how you know that the steroids are working. Um, you also tend to urinate more. So, um, you know, th- th- these are sort of the mundane disadvantages. Okay, we can deal with those. But some of the more deadly disadvantages, uh, you could get heart muscle damage. You also have an increased risk of heart attack, and you also get prostate enlargement. In addition to other issues that aren't aren't as deadly, but you may become infertile. You may have uh, a reduction in uh, the size of your testes. Uh, a-, a few downsides.
0: Darwin would be very disappointed. Yeah, in, in, infertility is a is a failure in Darwin's sense, right? You <laughs> can Pass your genes on to the next generation.
1: But then again, masters riders, you know, we don't need that. I'm more concerned, especially for master riders, about the increased risk of heart attack, the heart muscle damage. Um, you know, you, you don't really recover from that. You just have heart yeah, damage. Yeah, that's
0: a lasting lasting effect.
1: Yeah, uh, so you, I mean, you have heart damage for the rest of your life. And...
0: Yeah, you're, I mean, heart heart is a muscle, but probably one you want to keep in good shape.
1: Right. And so uh, on the topic of testosterone levels, we know that regular training, you see a slight dip in testosterone levels, Um, but it's only from overtraining. We have an episode on overtraining if you want to check that out. Um, Specifically overtraining, that's when you get really low testosterone levels. Um, That can be a a blood indicator that maybe you need to take a break or um, sort of refresh.
0: Although we also know with resistance training, particularly free weight resistance training, that you see an increase in testosterone levels.
1: Correct. And that's another reason why we should be doing strength training during BASE. So uh, now we're moving on to the part that um, you're excited about, Todd, which is some of the popular athletes with uh, steroid-related doping sanctions. So the two that I have on my list are kind of famously Tom Danielson um, mm-hmm. and his story. So he had a doping violation previously from sort of the uh, postal service era. Um, and then he claims that the maca root, which is uh, an herbal substance that, uh, you know, has some, it, it may be beneficial, but may not. Um, the herbal substance, the maca root was uh, sort of tainted with some testosterone boosting, Substance And actually all the the precursors to testosterone that could be in... um, And this is why you should not take any of those, um, you know, whatever uh, muscle max, double XL, you know, pre-workout things that that are really commonly advertised to weightlifters. Because they'll sometimes not have it on the label, but they'll include precursors to testosterone that your body will then convert into testosterone. And so Tom Danielson was able to show that the maca root had... Um, you know it's was tainted. tainted uh but since it was his second violation uh they they had much less um you know they they didn't really look as fondly upon him
0: well, and they're always you know, i mean if, if I'm not mistaken, they take it as a positive test positive test, you know and you're you're responsible for what you put in your body um as an as an athlete, and so even if it was tainted right that's one of the things they make um uh, they have a list right of um supplements that have had you know adverse results yep. that you should avoid taking and so you know it, it is on you to make sure that whatever you do take um is if you take supplements of some sort is actually a, a clean supplement
1: yeah and and I'll quickly say as well if you are worried about your supplements being tainted there are some companies that are um the the UK version of it is safe sport approved but there, there are certain certifications that you can get from the national body that says, you know, we're pretty confident that this company is doing all the right steps to make sure their substances aren't tainted. So do a little bit of research. I stick to one brand that I use because they are on the U.S. version of that list. I'll try and provide a link to, I'm trying to remember if I have the link to the uh, the list of companies that have been sort of designated by a government body as you know, low chance of tainting, um, and I—I I just use that one brand, and you know that that takes care of the concern that I have.
0: Yeah, I think that's that's smart, right? It's just making sure it's a reputable brand, and that process sort of vets them to say yep. it's not just your reputation, but actually um, some outside sources done some evaluation.
1: Yep, and um, so so the other person I have on the list is Lance Armstrong, who um, he. His story with testosterone was actually before he had cancer, he was uh, much more of a one-day classics writer, a much bulkier writer. And um, I, I'm reading in a book about, uh, I think it's, it's more about Floyd Landis, but uh, it mm-hmm. includes some of the um, information about Lance Armstrong. And um, When he first started working with uh, Dr. Ferrari, he came to their winter base training camp and was like huge. Like 180 pounds, um, just like an absolute bull. And uh, they, I think, one of his friends asked him, like, "Hey, what happened?" You know, and and he was like, "Oh, yeah, you know, the the supplements are just working a little too well, or something." Was was what he said. But he had some unusually high muscle growth, and and this this might also explain some of the stories about him um, as a young rider in the pro peloton, sort of. Uh, yelling in the face of some of the veterans and then, uh, storming off up the road. Uh, that's, that's that increased in aggressive behavior. Um, probably didn't do him, you know, it didn't make him a lot of friends.
0: Fair enough. So uh, I was actually going to go for, uh, Floyd Landis and the Jack Daniels defense.
1: Okay. I, I don't know this story.
0: I'm interested. Oh, you, you don't, you don't remember this story. Okay. So, but you do remember which what was, this was, uh, 2008, maybe six, okay. Wh- whichever, whichever year he, you know, won and then later had it re, um, you know, taken back. Mm-hmm. But, you know, so that particular year he was, you know, well, what was the deal? It was like, um, the, ultimately the, the one whose name is it, uh, Pereira, who, also finished second and you know ultimately has Mm -hmm. been gifted the title um he on a breakaway and had this huge lead and then you know landis had finally scraped it back and then had a terrible day just a terrible day uh in the mountains and lost lost the jersey lost a bunch of time and then you know the next day he just went on this you know mad attack early on and got the jersey back and defended all the way to paris um, And you know, he later tested positive for testosterone because you know, in competition testing. And at the time, he said, "Well, it must have been because after the bad day, like we sat down, I was really depressed. I had a couple shots of Jack Daniels, and that's whatever, whatever you know, magic happened there. It made my testosterone test high." Um, you know, later to be found out that wasn't the case at all but yeah. he wrote a he wrote an entire book to defend himself which was you know i guess some truths were in there but uh, mostly a lie so yeah um,
1: that's always mine is from a third party the book i'm reading is from a third party author um so it's all just interviews and uh, you know, individual research but um yeah that's uh
0: and and now landis peddles cannabis products
1: so. Yeah, so it's interesting he he has a little bit of uh, drug-related experience. It's interesting. So the the only other interesting uh, doping sanctions related to testosterone was actually um I w- when I was looking through the sanctions there was um two riders, um, a man and a woman from the same town with the same last name who both tested positive for testosterone use within a year of each other. And um
0: Add supplements
1: you know yeah I, I i'm not sure what's going on but um you know once w- once the man gets caught you assume you know the the you know you know they could just have the same last name and be from the same town but yeah it seems like a bit of uh
0: probability there seems <laughs> yeah I mean, well wait wait wait. was the last name like smith or johnson or something that's no wrong? it was okay All it right.
1: was a more unusual last name okay so um yeah it's it's interesting that the these two athletes decided that oh we're not going to get caught and then one gets caught and then the other says oh i won't get caught as well and and then they get caught so um uh, you know usada is pretty good about this stuff and um and now we're talking about it the you can actually uh send an anonymous tip mm-hmm. to usada about some of the athletes you compete with and. Um, it just puts, puts that athlete on the radar. They won't necessarily absolutely test them, but they'll look into their results more. They'll look into uh, other factors to see if that person could be a good candidate to be tested. And then they'll try to randomly show up to a race that the person competes in. And it's, it's, this stuff's actually fascinating because sometimes riders will, you know, they'll be on the start list and they'll drive up. And if they see the van there, they just keep driving you know and they never actually show up at the competition and that that's their way of you know evading and it's it's like why don't you just train you know yeah,
0: there's other ways to get it done
1: yeah there's there's other ways to be strong and you know you don't have to uh so the the last thing i have about testosterone is the uh is actually the easiest way to get it and it's actually um the number one way is just to tell your doctor that you aren't feeling you know all too peppy and uh you know that it's pretty easy to get a prescription for testosterone.
0: Well, you know that's, yeah, it is. It is what it is, I suppose. Um, another, yeah, it probably probably one of those things.
1: Yeah. But... So uh, the next drug that we have is EPO, and um, this drug is. Um, I'm I'm pretty sure most people have heard it. It's, it's fairly mainstream. So I'll just give you a little bit of background. We've we've kind of even talked about EPO in um, in previous episodes in terms of uh, basically what it is is it's a hormone that uh, increases your red blood cell production. And the reason it's a drug is because in 1977, Amgen, which you may know from the Amgen Tour of California, now, they developed well on
0: hiatus. Amgen yeah, Tour the, California. Um,
1: so the they first developed it in 1977, and um, it's actually the synthetic version is called R-EPO or recombinant EPO, mm-hmm. and um, it was not approved for medical use for 12 years, but at the same time somehow you know, professional cyclists got their hands on it as early as the beginning of the 1980s. And uh, EPO is typically used to treat anemia in patients with... Uh, essentially dysfunctional kidneys, like kidney disease or um, kidney failure, you, you won't be able to produce enough EPO on your own. So injecting EPO could be a way to um, stave off anemia when you're in that condition.
0: Because the kidneys are actually responsible for producing the hormone.
1: Correct. And um, what it actually does for the cyclists is it boosts the rider's hematocrit up to crazy high levels if they want it. So it's very much... You take a high dose you get a high response and hematocrit is the percent of your blood that is red blood cells so why you know where's where are the issues here so uh you know initially in the 80s riders had hematocrit levels at like 60 and that's crazy high because most endurance athletes are uh, like 42 to 45 and um, it actually goes down as you train more because um, you, you start to break down the red blood cells as you train, and that's something that a lot of Tour de France riders Especially will have. Especially in runners, too. Yep, because the hey, runners, it's the foot strike. and in, um, for, So for cyclists, the main issue is that the red blood cells start to tear as the blood moves quickly through your body. And so you'll have really low hematocrit levels at the end of a grand tour. Um, but these riders had really high hematocrit levels. And the issue with that is actually that red blood cells make your blood thicker. So these riders had really high hematocrit levels. And they would actually die in their sleep because their blood would stop moving. Because it was so thick.
0: And they were fit. And they had really low resting heart rates, too. Yep. So to compound that.
1: It was... Uh, a crazy combination, and actually um, it's been confirmed that 12 or potentially more professional cyclists in the 1980s died from you know using EPO or using too much ePO so this one in particular, this one's no joke. Um, using EPO is um, especially without you know some doctor supervision can be deadly
0: right or just you know being ill and having a need for it
1: yep that yeah, that's also deadly. So, um,
0: but I mean, also, right? There are there are ways to naturally stimulate EPO, which I think we've covered previously, right? Yep. Sauna, sauna use after you've done your training, um, right? Altitude,
1: altitude uh, tense, same yeah, idea.
0: Yeah, all those are you can naturally stimulate it by doing that.
1: Yeah, and so um, it, the history of the EPO is actually fascinating. the uh, The UCI couldn't test if you'd take an EPO, because they didn't know how to differentiate the recombinant EPO versus your natural EPO. So um, if you had over 50 on a given day, they said, oh, you can't race. Uh, just some sort of, oh, you know, we're medically yeah, concerned
0: about are, you. Arbitrary cutoff.
1: And so essentially all the riders would bump up right to 50. And, and if on the day they all had um, blood testing machines in their hotel rooms that the, the trainers brought with them, they would uh, like give someone some saline um, mm-hmm. before the race to drop them yep. from fifty-one. Di-
0: dilute it, yeah, because yep. it's a it's a concentration, right? So if you put more fluid in the system, you dilute the number.
1: Yep. So they would, uh, you know, these riders. Oh, let's see what your you know hematocrit is today. Oh, it's fifty-one. Like, get the saline.
0: Um, yeah. Well, it's pretty easy to test, right? Because if you donate blood, they do a, a fingerprint and they te- a finger prick and they test that for you. And they can yep. give you a result in you know a matter of minutes, so not hard to answer that question.
1: Yep. So um, yeah, they would you know finger prick everyone before the race, um, which is uh, I mean it was a solution for the time they had no no other way. Um, but the eventually Amgen, the inventors, uh, helped the anti-doping agencies be able to detect differences in urine. I believe it was urine output. And they could tell the difference between um, recombinant EPO and natural EPO in urine based on uh, what was excreted.
0: Which makes sense, especially since the kidneys are responsible for filtering everything and producing your urine.
1: Yeah, so uh, when that came around, I think that was in the late 90s. Mm -hmm. Like At at this point, it's it's much harder to use um, EPO directly to dope. So um, let's talk about the advantages. Like we said, in improvements in hematocrit. Um, and the big advantage is you can shuttle the oxygen more easily. So the riders that were most advantaged by this are aerobic riders, uh, grand tour riders, These, uh, you know, the, the people that really need to emphasize their aerobic system. And uh, also, like I said, it, it thickens your blood and you also have a higher chance of heart disease, stroke, cerebral, or pulmonary embolism. Oh, so all things that will kill you. Fantastic. Yeah, so, so that's four different ways that you could, <laughs> you could potentially die from uh, using EPO. So um, in terms of the performance benefits, they are absolutely there. In terms of the risk, it's also absolutely there. Um. Oh. Also, recombinant EPO can cause autoimmune disease. Um, if, oh, if you take fantastic. too much. Fantastic. So that's five ways. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so the last, um, the last area of doping that I have on my list is blood doping, and the summary for blood doping is essentially you replace your own blood with more of your own blood, but hopefully the blood you replace it with is better blood, and uh, actually. Um, or
0: well, or you concentrate it, or.
1: Yes. Right. So the the way blood doping was used generally is in combination with EPO. So um, what you end up doing is, so say a rider's in the Tour de France. They have to ride their bike every day for three weeks, except maybe a you know, rest day every once in a while. So their hematocrit levels are way down. Wouldn't it be great if we could give them new blood with high hematocrit levels in the third week of the race or in the second week of the race so that they They don't have that that long-term detriment of having low hematocrit levels. So what riders would do is, uh, during the off-season or during a less important part of the year, they would take EPO to really boost up their hematocrit levels, and then they would take that blood out of their body into a blood bag and freeze that. And then in the third week of the tour, they would unfreeze it and re-inject it, and they would feel good as new.
0: And often, so yeah, and sometimes you would, um, they would concentrate a little bit, right? So they would have, they wouldn't be whole blood, it might just be the, it would be more concentrated, so you take out some of the plasma, if I'm not mistaken, you're um, trying to in- increase the concentration.
1: Yeah, so I think that's, um, yeah, that's definitely more complicated, um, and there are actually a lot of potential downsides to blood doping in terms of uh, the risks associated with it, so um, it's it's actually fascinating. I, I was reading this one report and um, they you know there are athletes who had you know they won a gold medal and then you know they were sick for the next three days in the emergency room because uh, because their blood was either tainted or it it, um, it had thawed at some point and started to kind of decompose or um, you know degrade and then they still injected it. And, um, so yeah, there, there are ways to make the blood even better, but you, you do have to be careful with manipulating it too much.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, yeah, I mean, right. We, we do blood transfusions medically all the time, right? If someone's ill or, you know, has a, you know, a trauma, there's a lot of blood. This is, this is why you donate blood is so that, you know, you can possibly save somebody's life. So there's certainly precedent for it. This is just, um, you know, perhaps an, an extreme utilization of that same philosophy right to augment one's own blood for performance benefit
1: Yeah and so some of the disadvantages here is that um, the the blood doping can it can thicken your blood in the same way as uh, EPO um, Also if you inject someone else's blood that's not compatible with yours, it's a different type then um, you know you just die because um, your body thinks, kind of thinks your own blood is poison. Um, so it was really important for riders when this was popular to make sure that they knew which bag was theirs. And it's fascinating to hear the stories of um, they would use nicknames or their dog's name, or some riders would use their own name. But you shouldn't use your own name because if if the doctor gets caught, then everyone knows you were blood doping. So yeah,
0: they, had, they had elaborate schemes to try to cover all that up and still make sure you, you know they got their own blood back.
1: Yeah, and and you know, what if you forget the nickname or the doctor screws up writing, you know, which name on which bag? Um, it's uh I mean, this is why, you know, doping should not be condoned because you know, you mix up the blood bag and and you know, this athlete dies just because they're trying to keep up with everyone else who's blood doping. So and then like I said also your if the blood thaws or um, you know the electricity goes out, and you know your your freezer is compromised, and maybe you don't know the freezer's compromised. Um, it can be very dangerous to inject that blood.
0: And if you don't like needles, it's probably isn't going to go over very well for you.
1: Yeah, also true. And uh, you, you you know uh, I think there was a dramatization of like a bunch of riders all sitting in in the room together with a blood bag each like hanging next to them and they're just chatting you know about the day's race getting their their new blood um and and some of the most noteworthy uses of blood doping um the u.s cycling team won nine medals um and i believe it was in the la olympics
0: 1984 you mean i think 88 yeah 84. okay (laughs) The, the one the one where we cheated
1: yeah, so they the USA Cycling, or I guess it was U.S. Cycling US, Federation. Uh, I mean, yeah, um, they actually admitted to blood doping their athletes, um, and I guess it's interesting because they won nine medals that year, and they had not previously won a single medal in seventy-two years of Olympic cycling. Um, and it was so blood doping was not illegal at the time, but when they made it illegal, U.S. the you know the Cycling Federation said, "Oh yeah, we definitely blood doped." Um but uh you know, it's also interesting because in the 70s it was looked upon a little bit differently than in the 90s and 2000s it had a much more this is interesting science and uh, there weren't really a lot of discussions about the ethics of it. We didn't really understand it as well as we do now, which uh, it's you know generally agreed upon as really a bad thing nowadays and uh, the other, Famous uh, case was in the two thousand and four Olympic time trial. Tyler Hamilton, he won the Olympic time oh, trial. Oh yes, and um, his A sample. So when you do um, dope testing, you 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 give them two samples, and they test the first sample, and then you can request that they test the second sample uh, as a way to sort of have um, you know two kind of two sets of eyes on your. Um, know on your test except that you know you you pee into the first cup and then you pee into the second cup so it's not like they take it anytime later so it's likely that if it's in the first it's in the second
0: unless there was some error in the testing right yeah so well, w- that's one of the reasons right if there was some methodological error or something was contaminated in the first test yeah it's possible you you'd have an adverse finding in one test and then if it's redone and there's no contamination you may have a the appropriate, the truth in the second test, which may vindicate you.
1: Um, for the most part, though, it's it's very uncommon for the two tests to uh, differ in their results. Correct. But Tyler Hamilton, this is one particular scenario, his A sample, the reason why they, it sort of raised a red flag was because there was someone else's DNA in his blood sample. Mm-hmm. And, you know, why is there someone else's blood in your blood sample.
0: Also one of the most interesting defenses or attempted defenses of a doping case.
1: Um, was the, um, I forget the term for it. What uh, it chimeric it? twin. Yeah. He claimed that he had a twin that uh, fused in, with him.
0: Uh, no, it was, yes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly.
1: Um, yeah. He had a twin that fused in the womb and that was why he had, you know, more than one type. Two, of,
0: yeah. Two types of DNA.
1: Yeah. And um, essentially, they didn't catch him or they weren't able to catch him because the B sample was not stored properly to look at uh, blood DNA. Uh, And so they couldn't. He asked for the B sample and they said, oh, well, the samples, you know, we messed up the B sample. So
0: we can't confirm.
1: Yeah. And and then they they or deny. Yeah. Yeah. They said, well, you know, we can't charge him because we, we don't have a B sample. So um, yeah, blood doping is real and it's, it's interesting, blood doping definitely need to use that. For those of you interested, you need to use EPO with the blood doping to make sure that the blood that you put away and freeze is uh, good blood. You need really high hematocrit levels in that blood that you put away uh, that you're going to use later.
0: So this sounds like it's a, an expensive two-step process.
1: Yeah. So actually,
0: or mini step process to make all that happen.
1: Yeah. And, and of course we've now talked about four different uh, potential methods. Um, you know, one of them is as easy as going to your doctor. Uh, the other one is as easy. You can get some of the other stimulants, you know, over the counter or from your local, I, I guess you got to find like your local fraternity and ask them where they get their, um, illegal stimulants. But, um, You know, some of these are a little bit easier, but uh, EPO is very well controlled at this point. Um, And I do think that pulling off blood doping is uh, something to be left to uh, the professionals or someone with a lot of experience. That'd be really hard to pull off on your own.
0: Yeah. Needles, bags, freezing, EPO. There's a lot of variables there that you have to get right. I mean, and even if you get it all right, it's still incredibly dangerous.
1: Right. And, and those are also the ones that are really dangerous. I mean, uh, steroids, you know, yeah, you can get uh, heart muscle damage and there are some issues. Same with stimulants. You know, you can get heat stroke, things like that. But EPO and blood doping, you know, those are no joke. You can absolutely and people have died from both of those methods.
0: Uh, I mean, arguably from all of them to a certain extent, I mean, I guess maybe to a, like certainly amphetamines and stimulants, you know, sudden death has been witnessed mm-hmm. EPO and i don't know ex- like if it was exclusively blood doping but certainly EPO you've had you know cases of sudden death steroids is probably the only one i can think of in, in at least that i can't recall a cycling specific um like sudden death of somebody now you know whether or not there's long term effects and you you know lose years off your life um that's Debatable, right? And there may be some evidence of that. We do know, like, there's a long term harm. If you hurt your heart, that's really not great for your longevity. But yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, any of these things could kill you.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And um, if we're going to, I'm going to diverge a bit from the science, and uh, this is more along the lines of um, sort of uh, the long car rides to the collegiate race discussion. Um, it, you know, there was one Masters athlete who was taking a lot of vacations to Mexico, apparently was paying, you know, $30,000 per vial for, of EPO.
0: Medical tourism sort yeah. of situation.
1: And um, and they were eventually caught in the U.S. for, um, for EPO. And um, yeah, so, you know, speaking of the money side of it, you know, the... This is definitely anecdotal, definitely no evidence, but um, the claim was, you know, $30,000 for two weeks of EPO. So so you can
0: get a real fast bike for that price. You can even get one with the motor in it.
1: You can get a, a, like three coaches and two personal trainers and a dietitian for that price um, exclusively. Like, you know, I don't want you to work with anyone else except me. You can get all of those people for that same price you'll probably see similar performance benefits
0: yeah absolutely and less chance of dying
1: yeah and uh, and you don't get banned for f- four years also also that so um, yeah that's that's what I have um, if you like this topic um, this is kind of a bit divergent from some of our other episodes um, there's a lot more to talk about about doping um, if you want to be a good doper you also have to uh, do take masking agents. Uh, which we can talk about. That's uh, a way to sort of disguise what you're taking because it uh, messes with the tests or the other drugs. Um, We can talk about some other things like ephedrine. Uh, You mentioned uh, cortisol shots, so pretty popular. Um, And then other things like, for example, beta blockers or what Chris Froome had a kerfuffle with, uh, salbutamol. We can talk about that as well.
0: Or Alberto Contador, for that matter, a similar similar substance.
1: um, So... If you're interested, um, get in touch, uh, you know, tweet at us or email us. We have our email in the description. Uh, Let us know if this episode is good, if you want another one on a few different drugs. Um, And as always, thanks for listening. Um, You know, we enjoy making these and, you know, please share with your friends. Please uh, let everyone know that, uh, that we are now, you know, this is the expert, you know, doping episode so everything you need to know about why you probably shouldn't go down the path of doping
0: yes and you know honestly i think it's it's super interesting to talk about the science of it. it's it's very interesting i think it tells you a little bit about you know what is it that the highest level riders are trying to address you know their their physiologic shortcomings to enhance their performance um, but at the end of the day is just the the risk. I mean, you know, the risk to your health, but then also like the moral and ethical issues around doping. I think hopefully make a clear case for you that it's not you know not worth your while. And uh, we have many many other episodes to give you good advice on how to train and improve your performance, which are you know means that are much safer than uh, injecting these substances or consuming these substances. Absolutely. Well, I think, I think with that, that's all we have for this episode. So until next time, thanks for listening and keep the rubber side down.